night. <laughs> There's going to be a few of you are going to be rather sore this morning. What you've discovered is that bush dancing is actually a form of exercise. And uh, now you're experiencing the consequences of your, of your actions. Um, though it, it could be said that if we were to have one of those every week, we would rapidly become a church of firm believers. Oh. Four daughters. Four. Do you remember being a child, speaking of daughters? Um, or more narrowly, can you remember as a child having some strange habits that your parents couldn't talk you out of. This might be me revealing uh, a little bit too much about my nature to you uh, today. Um, I'm outing myself as a bit of a weirdo, but one of the things that I can remember as a child was just how much I hated brushing my teeth. I was against it. Um, So much so that mum would send me to the bathroom to brush my teeth before bed, and I would go into the bathroom, I would close the door, I would turn on the tap, I would splash some water on my face, and then I would stand there for two minutes doing nothing. (laughs) Turn off the tap, head out to bed. Mum would say, did you brush your teeth? I would say, yes. That whole process didn't take any less time or effort than actually brushing my teeth would have, do you understand? Um, But for some reason, to my immature mind, that seemed like a bit of a win. I didn't know how I was getting away with it. Mum told me lots of times, she was a good mum, she told me that if I didn't brush my teeth, that they would rot. But when you were young, it kind of doesn't matter because the old teeth fall out and you get new ones. (laughs) Easy come, easy go, I say. Fast forward to my teen years, and I had to learn the hard way that mum was right. Uh, And here I stand, a man whose head is just about able to set off a metal detector because of the number of fillings that fill my mouth. Um, because I didn't listen. Changing that habit later in life was harder than learning it from the beginning. I'm learning this as I raise my own children, but try and tell that to me when I was seven. We are in the book of Proverbs, considering uh, the wisdom which God has to give to us to apply the truth. We've come to the Proverbs of Proverbs. We've come to the long collection of self-contained sayings about various themes, Each one of these individual verses deserves being considered one at a time. Now, we mentioned last week that because the Proverbs are structured like this, it makes us preach through this book of the Bible differently to how we would do basically any other part of the Bible. Instead of walking through a passage verse by verse, uh, which would be a confusing mess, um, instead what we are doing is we are pulling out similar themes that run through the whole rest of the book and seeing what we can glean by considering these same ideas from different angles. Uh, Last week, we considered the themes of wickedness and righteousness, or more precisely, um, we considered how those two things lead to different outcomes in life and how that is explained to us in the book of Proverbs. Today, we pick up a new theme, which is the theme of instruction and correction. Instruction and correction. To take a look, we'll start with one main proverb that will set the pace for the day, for fun, I chose one of the spicy ones. I could, have, I could have picked a boring one, but I like the ones that punch you in the guts. Um, here is Proverbs chapter 12, verse 1. We'll get it up on the screen. It says, um, Whoever loves discipline loves knowledge, but he who hates reproof, reproof is stupid. Yeah. Love it. <laughs> well, 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 Sol. Isn't that confrontational? Um, proof that in ancient cultures... People were just a bit less afraid of hurting your feelings than we are today. But isn't it true? 
um, seven-year-old Matt thought he was being clever when he refused to brush his teeth. But what he was being was stupid. My actions were nonsensical. And grown-up Matt has to live with the consequences of my foolishness. By the age of 50, it'll be nothing but pear puree. As we begin to explore our theme, actually we're going to come across a a few key terms that are worth defining that will help us understand the Proverbs we're about to read. The first, of course, is instruction. Instruction means learning from others, learning lessons, usually some trustworthy authority, perhaps like a parent, sorry mum, or an experienced mentor. Uh, And we'll also come across the concept of correction or reproof. Uh, Another word that will come up is discipline. Um, These things represent the idea of being told that you are wrong and redirected toward what is right. Learning and correction are both going to play a role in the life of wisdom. With that in mind, we can scan across the Proverbs to see how these themes are treated. And just like Proverbs 12.1, some of these are quite fun. There's there's a few punchy ones in there. Um, Proverbs 10.17 we begin with. Whoever heeds instruction is on the path to life, but he who rejects reproof leads others astray. Do you remember in the New Testament, Jesus would later describe the Pharisees as blind guides. This is exactly what he was talking about. He found them to be unteachable, and in their haughty arrogance, they were leading others astray. Proverbs 12, 15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And I find that one frightening, don't you? It turns out that one of the signs that you're being a fool is that you don't know you're being a fool. You're blind to it. The way of a fool is right in his own eyes. God, rescue us from that blindness. Proverbs 13.1 A wise son hears his father's instruction, but a scoffer does not listen to rebuke. Proverbs 13, 18. Poverty and disgrace come to him who ignores instruction, but whoever heeds reproof is honoured. Seems like an inverse of what we expect to read, isn't it? Reproof and honour feel like opposites. When I am rebuked, I don't feel honoured. But once again, the book of Proverbs is calling us to the long view of these things. Proverbs 15, verse 10 says that there is severe discipline for him who forsakes the way. Whoever hates reproof will die. Of course, this is uh, keeping in mind ultimate spiritual realities. Where do we stand with the Lord, the way of God? Whoever hates reproof will find themselves his enemies. Proverbs 17, 10. I like this one. A a rebuke goes deeper into a man of understanding than a hundred blows into a fool. (laughs) You can't beat sense into some people. Proverbs 27, 6. Faithful are the wounds of a friend. Profuse are the kisses of an enemy. That's that's an interesting one. It's it's a good one for us to consider, but it's it's a difficult one to translate. Um, That second half of the verse that says profuse there, is a, a bit difficult to translate what that word is meant to mean. Some other translations say the kisses, the kisses of an enemy are deceitful. Um, I think the NIV says enemies multiply kisses. They're many. 
which is actually a valid translation option as well. But I think we get the idea, don't we? The wounds of a friend, which come as a rebuke, are a form of love. People who love you correct you, whereas the kisses of your enemies in the long term will prove to be a poison. Can you feel the trend as we read the book of Proverbs? Each of these offers some unique thoughts that we can discuss later this week in our small groups, but there is also a a unified current running through these things. If we're going to be wise people instead of foolish people, then part of that is going to mean that we need to become willing to receive instruction and correction. That's going to be a healthy part of a full spiritual life. By growing to be able to receive both of these things, the positive and the negative, instruction and correction, you are on the road to knowledge and wisdom and honour. And likewise, if you are unable to receive correction, if you never receive instruction, we will become monsters. Um, You are on the road, hard-hearted one, to disgrace, poverty, stupidity, the leading of others astray, foolishness, death, and cavities. There's a reality. I wonder, as we consider that, how does that make you feel? Ask yourself that question just for a moment. Do you like it? Does it, does it feel good? Does it feel nice? Because if I'm honest, that sounds absolutely horrible. Uh, that is not how I want life to work. In, in Matland, I live in a world where I am right all of the time and I never need to say sorry ever again. That's, that's my happy place. That is the place that I would like to live. There are any number of reasons why we might find the concepts of instruction and correction difficult. For me, it's the shame of it. I can't stand it. When I am wrong about something, or I find out that I have been acting in the wrong way, it sets my face on fire. I am not going to sleep well that night if I've ever had to say sorry to any of you. Especially when it's something important in my ministry or my care of others where I have not performed adequately, I feel condemned, I feel embarrassed and panicked all at once. I know in my head that I get access to the grace of Jesus just like anyone else, but there is something in my fallen nature which consistently finds that hard to believe. I'm my own harshest critic, And my failures press on an unhealthy and slow to heal part of my fallen nature. Best not to need grace by being absolutely perfect all the time. This is what my flesh believes. And it's not entirely wrong, is it? It's just that I'm not capable of that. I am content to spend my whole life serving other people in their weakness and encouraging them patiently. It is my delight. But I have no such patience and grace with myself. Maybe some of you are like me. This is what leads to one of the most strange and incoherent part of us as people, which we see all the time. Have you ever noticed that it is often the case that the most arrogant people are the most insecure people? Pride 
and insecurity are bedfellows. The person who can give criticism but can't receive it is usually the person who believes that they have something to prove in their inmost being. They are fundamentally insecure. Likewise, the person who is secure, the person who is whole, the person who knows who they are, who has a strong grasp on their gracious standing with God, will find that their flaws are no threat to their identity and their sense of place. The closer we grow to God through grace, the less we have to fear from our failings. The arrogant among us are often the most insecure. And so here, Proverbs shows us a goal. A thing we should all hope and desire to grow into. Being able to receive instruction and correction is going to bless you. And so we should hope to be the kind of people who see the wisdom in that. Now, unfortunately, the book of Proverbs, whilst it brings this to our awareness, doesn't do a whole lot to equip us to be those people. It tells us that it's a good idea. It might give us, it might give us the appetite for it, but it, it, doesn't, <laughs> it doesn't fix what is broken to know that this is true. If you are listening to this theme and you're thinking, I can see the wisdom in it, but it's not who I am, it's something I find really hard, knowing that doesn't do, all on its own, a whole lot to transform you. Do you know what I'm talking about? Well, for you, I have good news. Because it turns out that this theme isn't only found in this one part of our Bible. Especially for us living in the New Testament era, we know some things that Solomon didn't. Solomon built the temple. He knew God was gracious. But we know the one whom the temple existed to point us toward. And so when we consider these themes through the lens of the gospel, this call to correctability becomes much more productive. Consider this with me. Ours is, is it not, a gospel of grace. That is the chief jewel in the crown of our religion. We believe as Christians that we are not saved, we are not reconciled to God by our working and our deserving, but rather our salvation is found in the gracious intervention of God, which is received by the undeserving through faith in Jesus Christ, our Lord. That is the gospel. And that means that by definition, a Christian has to view themselves as flawed and needing correction. We have to view ourselves as ignorant and needing instruction. If I am a person who is fallen, hopelessly lost, unable to rescue myself, and completely dependent on grace, then I am also someone who must need instruction and correction. You can't have one without the other. It turns out, that arrogant Christians should be an oxymoron. Unfortunately, sometimes our churches are filled with oxymorons. (laughs) 
Well, all this is to say is that if we want to be like this, if we, if we want our lives and our character to reflect this good principle, then what we're going to need to receive is the correction which comes from God himself. That's the engine room that brings maturity into my life. Do you know, when, when we open up the Bible, we're reading God's own words. And when we encounter God in his word, he has told us this is exactly what will happen to us. Um, for example, in, in Hebrews chapter 4, we're told what the word does. Um, Hebrews 4, 12 and 13 says, The word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and of spirit, of joints and of marrow, and discerning the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. And no creature is hidden from his sight, but all are naked and exposed to the eyes of him to whom we must give account. Isn't that incredible? In God's word, we receive both instruction and correction. We receive training and rebuke. We receive encouragement and reprimand. I love what it says here about how God's word discerns the thoughts and the intentions of the heart. Have you experienced that? It happens to me all the time. You read this book, and all of a sudden it's a bit like, how did you know my inside thoughts? I thought that was a secret and I was the only one. It speaks so precisely to the center of of who I am and of what I need to hear because the Word of God is living and active and sharper than a sword. This is God's Word. It was put down on paper millennia ago, by people who didn't even speak our language in another time, another place, and another culture. And yet when we encounter it today, it is still very effectively splitting us open like nothing else in this world. If that wasn't proof that that book was inspired by the God who made us, I don't know what is. It is the wisest book ever written. It turns out that the God who made us knows us better than anyone else and knows what makes us tick. We need to receive that instruction and correction from God himself, first of all. That's the way to salvation. That's that's the heartbeat of what it is to be a Christian. The gospel is instruction and correction from God. It is correction in that it tells us about our sin and our need for the Savior. And it is instruction in that it tells us how to get him and how to walk with him. The goal of what we are doing here at church today is not that we would come and go having been unchanged. Our hope is that we would be transformed from the most inward parts heading outwards into our whole lives, not just here at church, but our every interaction with God is is growing us to become something more whole, more complete, more beautiful than we presently are until we perfectly resemble His image. I mean, there's so many examples of of how this works in the life of a person. Perhaps one of the best ones we find in the Bible comes from the life of King David. He's in the Old Testament. He didn't have our understanding of Jesus. Not, Not so many things had been revealed to him as have been revealed to us. But nonetheless, David understood grace, which is why he's called the man after God's own heart. He understands what it is 
to be undeserving of God's mercy and to receive it anyway through faith. Do you remember the story of King David? He begins, we, we just heard a, a wonderful story a few weeks ago when Josh was preaching from the early parts of his life, the battle with Goliath. David starts well. Life gets off with a bang. Uh, eventually, he becomes the king of Israel. But in later life, he began to take the things which had been the bedrock of his life earlier on for granted. And in that spiritually complacent state, compromise turned into catastrophe. He took someone else's wife and had the man murdered to cover the deed. Proverbs 12.15 says, The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. And for a time, this describes King David. The way in which his heart had chosen to deal with his sin was to self-justify, to, to, to cover it with arrogance, to pretend like there was no problem. When he was confronted by the prophet Nathan, <laughs> in a very short space of time, poor David went from embodying the negative side of that proverb to the positive. Nathan came to King David and tells him a story of a rich man who stole the only lamb of a poor man in order to feed his guests. And then he asks David the leaving question, what should be done with this rich man? In Samuel 12, 5, 2 Samuel 12, 5, David speaks. It says, David's anger was greatly kindled against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this deserves to die. The way of a fool is wise and right in his own eyes. But that's not the end of the story. 2 Samuel 12, 7, Nathan said to David, you are the man. You are the man. It's David's response to this moment of eye-opening conviction, which is what makes him an example for us to follow. Despite the size and the magnitude of his failings, we still think highly of King David because of verses like 2 Samuel 12, 13, David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. That is correction. I have sinned against the Lord. He would go on to pen Psalm 51, a psalm of repentance. And if you would ever like to see what a master class in repentance looks like, have a read of Psalm 51. It's a prayer to God. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you and you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. This acceptance of correction becomes teachability. Verse 6, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Which leads David to the conclusion, 
What is it that makes a person pleasing to God? Verses 16 and 17. You will not delight in sacrifice, or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. This is why we love David. Contrite, we don't use that word very often. It's an incredibly important word for us to understand here. It means something close to being humbled. My pride has been broken and I am now repentant. I am in contrition. This is the state that a Christian exists in. I was my own. I was confident in my own ability to make my life good. I was confident in my own righteousness because the way of a fool seems right to his own eyes. But at some point in my life, I encountered the conviction of the Holy Spirit revealing to me that my nature was corrupted far beyond what I was willing to admit. And in seeing it, those of us who are Christians have said, yes, God, you are right. My sin is sin. My flaws are real. And I need your gracious redemption. This is contrition. That contrition isn't a a once and for all deal. It's not a thing we do on Tuesday, get baptized on Wednesday, and then go on to live self-righteous lives. No, it is now the continual state of the Christian. Because I know I am not perfect, because I know salvation is not my own, I remain humbled for the rest of my life. My pride has been broken, and now I am repentant. Having had this encounter with God, this then begins to overflow into how we approach other people. You come to me and you tell me that I've wronged you. And my flesh says, that is life-threatening for me. That can't possibly be true or else all is lost. And my hope says, of course you've disappointed them. (laughs) You are not perfect, but the Saviour is. And so receive it and move on. Because Jesus is my hope and a sure hope he is, I can be confidently wrong. (laughs) It's not that I've made friends with my flaws. It's that they no longer define me. Their power over me has been broken and I have now been set free to be wrong. Do you feel that difference? The way of a fool is right in his own eyes, but a wise man listens to advice. It is because we are gospel people that we are now able to receive instruction and correction from other people. Said in the negative, if you are unable to receive instruction and correction from other people, you have a gospel issue. You need more of Jesus and a higher confidence in him in order to grow past that flaw. Um, Poor David had to do both at once. (laughs) So the question that we reflect on this morning is a simple one. Am I a contrite person? Am I humble before God? Uh, Mike began our service this morning reading from the Beatitudes. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Does this describe me? 
Am I somebody who knows my need and knows where the solution is found outside of myself? Or am I still pretending that I can do this on my own? Am I a Christian living as if grace were the training wheels on the Christian life, waiting to be discarded? Or has grace and mercy become my banner, under which I live all of my days? Why don't we read a psalm as we consider that thought? A psalm of King David, of wisdom and instruction and correction from God. Psalm 25. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. O my God, in you I trust. Let me not be put to shame. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Indeed, none who wait for you shall be put to shame. They shall be ashamed who are wantonly treacherous. Make me to know your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Lead me in your truth and teach me, for you are the God of my salvation. For you I wait all the day long. Remember your mercy, O Lord, and your steadfast love, for they have been from of old. Remember not the sins of my youth or my transgressions. According to your steadfast love, remember me for the sake of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, and therefore he instructs sinners in the way. He leads the humble in what is right and teaches the humble his way. All the paths of the Lord are steadfast love and faithfulness for those who keep his covenant and his testimonies. For your name's sake, O Lord, pardon my guilt, for it is great. Who is the man who fears the Lord? Him he will instruct in the way that he should choose. His soul shall abide in well-being and his offspring shall inherit the land. The friendship of the Lord is for those who fear him and he makes known to them his covenant. My eyes are ever toward the Lord for he will pluck my feet out of the net. Turn to me and be gracious to me for I am lonely and afflicted. The troubles of my heart are enlarged. Bring me out of my distresses. Consider my affliction and my trouble and forgive all my sins. Consider how many are my foes and with what violent hatred they hate me. O oh, guard my soul and deliver me. Let me not be put to shame, for I take refuge in you. May integrity and uprightness preserve me, for I wait you. Redeem Israel, O God, out of all his troubles. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.